we were busy keep talking about fireplaces. That's I had a question, question and I can't remember what it was now. <laughs> uh, somebody had a question about dependent origination the other day. What was that? Oh, it's the, uh, it's kind of a perennial question about to what extent does the dependent origination, the classical dependent origination description of the 12 links of dependent origination uh, apply like here and now and how much, to what extent is it over like three lifetimes? Because there's this, this notion that the dependent origination really only occurs over the span of three lifetimes. I don't yeah. understand. Yeah, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little what weird. Are you talking about? Do you know what depend, dependent origination? Have you heard that term? So, this is um, part of the Buddha's teaching. It's called um, Paticca Samuppada, yeah. and uh, the translation is dependent origination. And the meaning is that. Uh, this thing, whatever this thing is, depends on this thing. If there's none of this, then there can't be any of that. So we say, for example, that um, because there's ignorance, um, there is sankaras. If there were no ignorance, there would not be any sankaras. Is or, twelve dependent? Well, there's, so there's there's twelve links of of in the classical description of the chain of dependent origination. And actually when we do, uh, when we do funeral chanting, we actually recite it. Uh, so the, uh, the recitation in our book, let's see if I can find it here. You'll probably recognize it when you hear it chanted. Vipassana Bhumi. So in the Vipassana, Vipassana Bhumi Pato, uh, as part of the funeral chanting, you go, Pancha Kanda Rupa Kando Vedana Kando Sanya Kando, etc. And so there's, there's several segments here. Um, we talk about the five Kandas, uh, the, um, the sense bases, and then eventually we talk about the four um, the four noble truths. Chattari Hariyasachani Dukkang Hariyasachang Dukasamudaiho Hariyasachang Dukaniroda Hariyasachang Dukaniroda Gamini Patipada Hariyasachang And then the next thing that we chant is the chain of dependent origination. Avija Pachaya Sankara Sankara Pachaya Vinyanang Vinyana Pachaya Namarupang Namarupa Pachaya Salayatanang Salayatanapachaya Paso Pasa Pachaya Vedana Vedana Pachaya Tanha Tanha Pachaya Upadanang 
Upadana Pachaya Bhavo Bhava Pachaya Jati Jati Pachaya Jara Maranang Soka Parideva Dukkha Domanha Supayasa Sampawanti Eva Metasa Kevalasa Dukkha Kandasa Samudayo Hoti So, you recognize that? Dukkha, <clears throat> uh, so Avija Pachaya Sankara. From Avija arises Sankara. Sankara's being formations. And this is this is the notion of Sankara's in the kind of the broadest um, definition. Sankara Pachaya Vinyana. So when there's when there's Sankara's, there's feeling. Um, or sorry, consciousness. Vinyana. Vinyana pachaya nama rupa. So when there's consciousness, there is body and uh, body and form, form, form and uh, form and mental. Uh, what do they call it? Name and form. Name nama rupa. Nama rupa pachaya salayatana. So when there's name and form, there are the six sense bases. Salayatana pachaya paso. When there are six sense bases, there is contact. Pasa pachaya vedana. So when there's contact, there will be feeling. Vedana pachaya tanha. When there is feeling, there will be craving. Tanha pachaya upadana. When there is craving, there will be clinging. Upadana pachaya bhavo. When there is clinging, there will be becoming. Bhava pachaya jati. When there's becoming, there's birth. Jati pachaya jara marana. So when there's birth, there's aging and death. Soka parideva dukadomana supaya sa sambhavanti. And from this arises the entire mass of suffering. Um, this is how this whole mass of suffering comes to be. So, those are the 12 links of dependent origination. If there weren't any ignorance to begin with, then there wouldn't be any formations. If there weren't any formations, there wouldn't be consciousness, and so on, all the way down the chain. And that's actually the next the next set of phrases. phrases. With a complete fading away of ignorance comes the fading away of formations. And so the, Buddha, the next phrases talk about when this fades away, then that fades away too. Uh, and it's the, the, so there's these 12 links. Now, because those are kind of, they're a little cryptic, they're not necessarily self-explanatory. We know which, which, how they, maybe what the terms mean in a translated way. We know Ouija kind of mean ignorance, yeah. And sankara formations, uh, vinyana consciousness. Um, but here's like right there, vinyana. There's a kind of, there's a little bit of a possibility of confusion because vinyana pachaya nama rupa, right? Well, nama rupa is um, defined as form, along with attention, intention, um, 
feeling and consciousness. So there's consciousness in Nama Rupa. Uh, so, but Nama Rupa and consciousness are, are the two links of dependent origination um, that are said to uh, lean on each other. Right? They, they, like, because there's Nama Rupa, there's consciousness, and because there's consciousness, there's Nama Rupa. So um, if there weren't Nama Rupa, there couldn't be consciousness and vice versa. Um, even though Nama Rupa kind of includes consciousness in its in itself, um, the Buddha picks out consciousness as something in, almost independent of. But nothing in those links is in, actually stands alone. They only stand up when the other one's also there. So, in trying to explain these terms <clears throat> historically. Um, in the um, in the commentaries, there's a, an explanation that basically says that avijja um, pachaya sankara means that because of ignorance in this lifetime, or because of ignorance in your previous lifetime, you didn't know any better. You weren't you were enlightened yet, so you were still uh, you still had avijja in your previous lifetime. And in that previous lifetime, because of your Ouija, you created sankharas um, of uh, rebirth. Right. So there's a moment, a moment of death, where the mind uh, is said to create a rebirth link in consciousness, which is a kind of a sankara. Right? So if there's no ignorance, that doesn't happen. Right. So the thinking is, is that because of ignorance in the previous lifetime, um, th- then there's a relinking, a relinking from one life to another, um, which is the basis for um, the sankharas that make up that will be experienced in this lifetime. And so, the whole idea of um, the next, the next several links, which are consciousness. Uh, Consciousness, name, and form, and the six sense bases. So, consciousness, name, and form, and the six sense bases. Um, in this explanation, those are those are associated with the, this physical body that was created at this physical birth, right? So that's this lifetime, comma. So because of the previous lifetime, we're having this lifetime, and because of the because of having the six sense bases, and of course all those other things like contact and craving and clinging. Um, and becoming. Now becoming, um, and then jati jara maranam sokaparideva. So becoming leads to birth and death. Um, so your next, the, the, the third lifetime, will be the place where the relinking consciousness from this lifetime uh, creates birth and death again. Right? So, so there's three lifetimes because last lifetime, cre- last lifetime created this the formations, consciousness, name and form, and six sense bases of this lifetime. This lifetime creates birth in the next lifetime, birth and death, right? So, um, and it's because that, that the term birth comes later in the, in, in the chain. It can't refer to this lifetime because this lifetime already had birth, right? So what comes next is birth, aging, and death, right? So right now we have the six sense bases, we have contact, we have feeling, we have clinging, and we have uh, becoming. And 
So that's what's happening like right now in this moment. Because of that, there will be, we're not saying there will be death, we're saying there will be birth and death, right? And that's just the way it's described in the suttas, right? So the, the, the um, commentaries in trying to, trying to explain, explain this as a linear construct, construct put um, that particular mention of the term birth in one's next lifetime. Uh, and of course, obviously, birth happened in this lifetime too, but it's not described as such. It's described as vinyana nama rupa salayatana. So uh, consciousness, name and form, and the six sense bases. Um, so that's that's a, an interpretation of what the six links mean. Those, those links mean, um, and it's kind of controversial because um, you know there's this other teaching that the Dhamma is apparent here and now. And so, if, if one sees the Dhamma, then one should be able to see all of dependent origination, because dependent origination is also described as the Dhamma. It's just another way of teaching the Dhamma. One who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. This is another one of the teachings in the suttas. So, because it's a little controversial, well, controversial is maybe not the right word, there are different interpretations. Because of these different interpretations, there are, um, uh, you could say, it's like scholarly or um, lineage disputes about what it means. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the, what the Buddha the Buddha's recommendation is, okay, like, here's something to use as a framework for practice, to try to see for yourself. And that's really the whole point of, in my view, that's the point of this teaching about dependent origination, is, uh, you know, you don't need to develop psychic powers to be able to recall your, last, your past life, so you can remember the relinking consciousness that brought you to this life, and then be able to look into the future and see your future life, and see the birth that's going to happen in that future life in order to see dependent origination. That's kind of asking too much, right? When, when, uh, when the Buddha gave the turning of the wheel sutta, the Dhammachaka Pavatana sutta, um, Venerable Kondanya saw the Dhamma during that sutta. But there's no description of him seeing his past lives or his future lives or anything. What he saw was everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. That's what he saw, and that's how he knew uh, the Dhamma. Well, think about it. Everything that has the nature to arise, arising is um, this the pachaya side, and the um, has the nature to fade away. Fading away is the tawewa viraga nirodo. The fading away of um, uh, one link of dependent origination causes the fading away of the subsequent links. So what he's seeing, what that phrase describes, everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. What, what that's describing is how the na- this chain of dependent origination, um, uh, each 
component is giving rise to other components, which give rise to other components. But no one of the components is a permanent thing. They're all kind of tumbling forward in time, and rising and passing away, creating their, their, their consequence. And uh, part of the consequence is to re-trigger the whole cycle over and over again, because there's this recurrence of a Ouija, like uh, happening over and over again. Um, so there's, there's like another interpretation of the links of dependent origination, um, which is a dynamic present moment interpretation having to do with what one sees when one practice, practices vipassana. So what, what you see uh, sooner or later is kind of a very dynamic arising and passing away of all phenomena happening in mind and body. And at first, you, see, you simply sort of see it. You notice, oh, look, at, at, uh, wherever I put my mind, whatever's happening there is very dynamic. It's kind of rising and passing away very quickly. Um, and you start to notice that the rising and passing away of things uh, is somehow conditioned by where you put your attention. So if your attention isn't on it, it's, it's as though it doesn't, it doesn't exist. And when you put your attention on it, you see that attention causes it to appear to... It's like attention and the, the phenomenon of arising and passing away that attention is aware of are interdependent phenomena. This is how mind and body and consciousness are related. So uh, we start to see these elements of dependent origination. And when insight arises, it arises in the form of realizing, realizing in effect, in a very deep way, that that's true for absolutely everything, including the sense of me the sense of self, right? So that's seeing uh, anicca, uh, it's seeing anatta, and it's also seeing dukkha because this arising and passing away, which is very sort of dynamic, happening very quickly, not under your control, um, it's not particularly delightful. It's, it's, it's busy and maybe even somewhat unpleasant. So um, that's the modern interpretation of what's being taught there. Uh, but it's in direct conflict with the commentarial interpretation, which is, oh, this is something that happens over three lifetimes. So becoming doesn't happen now. It happens at the end of this lifetime, just, be, just prior to birth, right? Um, and um, ignorance isn't happening now. Ignorance happened in the previous lifetime. Or maybe sankaras aren't happening now. Sankaras happened in the previous lifetime. The, the, consciousness relink, relinking consciousness that links the previous life to this life. That's the sankara that, that we're talking about. So that in that commentarial interpretation, um, the terms become sort of very like kind of rigid and technical. Right? It's it's not something that um, uh, is brought out in the suttas. So there's no discussion about relinking consciousness in the suttas. That was a development that came later in the commentaries. And so the Vasudhi Maga, for example, has a lot of talk about this sort of thing. <clears throat> Modern scholars believe that those developments came about because of a, a, a scholarly attempt at the time of the development of the Abhidhamma to make it all uh, make sense, make it all sort of uh, uh, rationally uh, hang together. And you know, they, they, you could say they did a good job. It does all hang together, 
on the basis of their explanations, but whether those explanations are actually um, really helpful for practitioners or not, that's another question. And, and so, so that's, that's kind of like where the, where the art, you could say that the argument is, if, there, if you could call it such a thing. Um, for those for whom the Abhidhamma and the commentaries uh, are, are effective and successful, um, and that's great. And those who like the uh, modern Vipassana methods, uh, where those, those things aren't really brought up, uh, but they seem to have you know, real success as practitioners, that's great too. Uh, it's one of the things about the teaching. It has a lot of these uh, shades of interpretation. So the definition of what jhana is, uh, the definition of what enlightenment is. Um, these things, everybody wants to have an, a you know, hard, fixed answer so that we can be absolutely sure. But unfortunately, there aren't really hard, fixed answers. Um, but you can, get, you can get a sense of it. You, can, you have a... a and um, the Buddha often pointed out that, that the result of the practice is freedom and happiness. And so... If the practitioner is getting freedom and happiness, then they're on the right track, whether whether anybody sort of certifies their mental state or not, because who can certify somebody else's mental state? Uh, it's, it's to be seen individually by the wise. That's uh, one of the epithets for the Dhamma. One sees it for oneself, available uh, here and now. So when one's seeing it here and now, um, the one's experiencing freedom here and now. One's experiencing the happiness of, of that freedom here and now as well. So it's not, uh, it's not really a matter of you know, memorizing the technical terms and making sure that you've got it all right. Uh, those, are, those are kind of optional exercises to do. Uh, I did them at one time. I wasn't a very good student. I, once I get the, pic- the picture... And the commentaries say this, and the modern teachers say that, and the Mahasasaita says this, and another teacher over here says something else. Um, I, okay, it's like a lot of things in... I was raised, I was raised Catholic, and so there's things in uh, Christianity that are like that too. You know? Uh, uh, you know, the church says... Uh, the Catholic Church says such and such, but it doesn't say that in the New Testament, therefore the church is got a different interpretation than other Christians do. So you, it can get into arguments, but it's kind of, it's not really very important uh, from, a, from a practical standpoint. Uh, and when it gets down to practice, that's, that's really where, the, where, the, you know, where it's worth putting your mental effort, trying to understand that. Safe to say that Ajahn Chah would have saw it as like the idea of the millisecond. I think he had the analogy of falling out of a tree and count the branches. Mm-hmm. Probably would have been. He said something, yeah, he did say something like that. He says, you know, trying to see the 12 links of dependent origination. It's like a man who's, who falls out of a tree and wants to count all the branches on the way down, right? Um, because it, all he really knows is something happens and then it hurts, right? Um, uh, and he, so that just means that he hasn't solved his problem. When he solves his problem, then it doesn't happen anymore. And it doesn't matter whether he counted all the branches or not. 
I'm paraphrasing, but something along those lines. Um, yeah, Ajahn Chah often put it as put it in the in the, in the terms of uh, watching your mind until you understand, and then solve your own problem. Because your problem is is that you're making yourself suffer, and the reason that you're making yourself suffer is because you're clinging to something which shouldn't be clung to. So when you see that that's what's going on, then you let go, and now you've solved your problem. And it doesn't require like technical terms or abhidhamma or understanding about past lives. Those things are they're optional. It, they might be interesting or inspiring or uh, whatever, but but really, it's you know, if you can't if you know all that stuff and you never look at your mind, you're not going to get anywhere. So the, so he was he was all about just watch, you know, watch what your mind actually does. And especially when it's suffering, especially when there's suffering in the mind, that's a clue, you know, that there's clinging. So you have to look. And uh, if you make a habit out of that, you catch it more and more frequently, and you know, eventually, you know, the, the mind is got the mind is made of habits. You know, it's 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 always doing like 99.9 percent of the time. It's doing the same sorts of things that it always does just based on whatever's happening in the environment. So if there's something to drink, you just drink it, right? You don't have to remember how to swallow. You don't, you don't have to worry about you know, uh, which muscles are doing what. You don't have to make your stomach digest. The mind's the same way. You know, When someone says your name, you turn and see who's talking to you. And if they ask you a question, answers come up. Um, if, they, if they insult you, anger comes up. So, so this is the mind responding to its environment. And the job is to see that um, clearly enough to get down to where uh, sufferings, the origins of sufferings in that dynamic, because like suffering is kind of coming up all the time in various forms. Uh, the reason that we meditate is so that we can calm the mind down enough, make it still enough that we can have. It's sort of like um, slowing down a, uh, a film, a movie, or something like that. You know, if you're if you uh, uh, watch something happen really fast, like a a, 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 a funny example is coming to mind. Ajahn Viridamo has a bird feeder, and there's a squirrel that kept trying to jump on his bird feeder from it. So the uh, the bird feeder is hanging off the edge of the house, and it dangles down. The birds all come and get the bird feed, and a squirrel likes to climb the side of the house. And jump across and get on the bird feeder and then scare all the birds away and then eat all the seeds and scatter them all over the ground. So, you know, Viridham was not trying to feed the squirrel, he's trying to feed the birds. So he kept putting it further and further out. So the squirrel had to jump farther and farther to get to it. And he was filming the squirrel. So, you know, that's what he's jumping. And uh, one day he filmed it at high speed and he could play it really slow. So he likes to go out and show it to people. It's like, look at my squirrel. And it's like the squirrel. You see the squirrel, like, you know, he kind of like flies in the air. You know, and you see like his fur rippling in the wind. You see like the ambition. And then you see him just like miss. <laughs> he doesn't get to go quite far enough. And so when you see, when you slow things down like that, you see a lot more detail. Uh, and that's, the, that's what a concentrated mind can do. It can see how one thing leads to another in a very detailed way. And sooner or later, you notice a detail 
that's really, really critical, really important, that ordinarily you just overlook because you're not looking that carefully. And when you catch that detail, that detail being the place where you choose to cling, right? when you choose to cling, then you're choosing to suffer. Right? If you don't, if you don't realize that that's what's happening, then of course you're just just like swallowing. You just do it, and you don't really pay that much attention to how it works. But if you really slow things down, like taking a really slow sip of tea, you, know, you notice everything that happens. The, the lips move, and then tongue comes forward. Now you, so you get you get down into every little detail. Now not every little detail is by itself going to lead to freedom. But the mind that can see the details is going to see the details that do lead to freedom. So you see a lot of stuff that's just, okay, that's just how it is. Things arise and pass away. But when you actually catch the mind doing its little thing where it grabs onto stuff and then suffers, you know, like it decides to have an opinion about something, it decides to like something, it decides to hate something, it decides to get angry about something, it decides to get sad about something, it decides to look forward to the future, it decides to think about the past. Whenever the mind does that, it's clinging. And when it does that, it's going down the path of suffering. But it's a volition, it's something the mind chooses to do. And it's, but it's being chosen below the level of normal awareness. So that's what we practice. So we can get right down into the details of how the mind does its thing. And uh, eventually when you, when you get better and better at catching it, then you can turn it off. And when you turn it off, it's just very pleasant. Yes. Is there only one link, independent origination, where the chain can be broken? Well, that's, there's, there's a, kind of this, this thinking that if you um, want to break the chain of dependent origination, um, there's a particular place where you do it, right? Um, it's the, the, the link between feeling and craving, or contact and craving, sorry. But so when, when there's contact, there's feeling, when there's feeling, there's craving. So, and that's, that's you, it's not so much that that's where you break the chain, but that's where the details of the mind's tendency to grasp are going to be seen, is right there in that part of the chain. So you can sort of look at suffering, um, which is at the end of the chain, you know, jati jara mananang soka paridevo dukkha. So if you look at suffering, you can say, okay, yeah, that's, that's the end of the chain. You can't really see the avijja at the very beginning of the chain because it's, uh, because it's sort of in the background, you don't really realize it. The avijja is really just referring to the fact that you don't know yet how the chain works. Once you know how, how the chain works, then avijja is automatically gone. So, um, so the place to look is when the mind is contacted by something. Feeling arises very naturally. It's not up to you. It just happens all by itself. And then, so there's contact, there's feeling, and then there's tanha. Right? So tanha is where there's the mind forming an attitude of either wanting or not wanting the, the thing that's being felt, the contact. So there's contact, there's feeling. Feeling's going to be either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Normally what happens is neutral we sort of don't pay much attention to. Pleasant we try to get more of, right? Yeah, we just kind of ignore it, right? Pleasant we try to get more of, and uh, unpleasant we try to push away. 
And that part where we try to get more of, or we try to push away, or we try to just ignore, um, that's when the mind is clinging, is like it's, it's, it wants something, it's thirsty for something, it's no longer, it's not content. So that's right there, that tanha, thirst, is the translation of the word. That's where the mind is like um, inclining. It's, it's no longer like centered and peaceful and, and completely equanimous about what's happening. Some contact comes along and pushes it off, off its uh, balance point. And it starts inclining towards wanting something. And that's the beginning of clinging. And from clinging comes all the suffering. So <clears throat> it's right there when you see the mind doing that, going from contact, feeling, tanha, clinging, right in that vicinity there. You see that often enough. You'll see that the tanha is um, subject to your intervention. Like, like you can intervene at that point and drop it. So essentially tanha is a volitional component of what happens in the mind. So this volitional aspect, it's not volitional in the usual sense that we think of it, like we're not choosing consciously to be um, thirsty. You know? It's happening kind of unconsciously. But when you actually see the mind doing it, you can see that there's an, there's an element of inclination or that's coming from, uh, it's, it's tied up with the sense of me, like I want or I don't want. And that's why it's, that's why it's tied up with becoming. Right? Because becoming bawo, which comes right after uh, clinging, uh, clinging leads to becoming. Well, what, be- what's, what becoming is pointing to is the arising of a self who has an opinion about something and wants it to be different. Right? If there's no one there who wants anything to be different, then, the, then feeling is just feeling. Contact is just contact. And there doesn't need to be any tanha. Right? But as soon as tanha comes up, it's like the, the seed from which uh, the whole psyche, that's, that's the me, uh, is going to spring up. And it doesn't happen like, you know, like once when you're born or something. It's happening like all the time, every moment of every day. Whenever um, the mind is experiencing uh, contact, it's experiencing pleasure and pain. And uh, if that's enough to generate... Um, wanting it to be different, then that wanting it to be different is uh, tanha and upadana and bawo and jatinja and all the whole, the whole mess comes out of that. Think of it this way: when you're when you're perfectly composed, perfectly equanimous, perfectly at ease in deep meditation, following your object, you don't want anything to be different. Like everything's just fine, just the way it is. Breath's coming in and the breath's going out. And the breath comes in, and the breath goes out. And there's no, there's no wanting. There's nobody who's even doing it. Right? It's just happening. Attention is just watching it. Coming in, going out. And then, someone starts snoring. <laughs> At that moment, there's contact that wasn't there before. And if you're, if you're paying attention, you can see the mind react to that sound with 
some kind of valence. Right? Um, and if you, if you catch it, you go, oh, look, the mind's starting to move. Um, it, like, that's unpleasant. There's an unpleasant sound. The mind's about to move and develop an opinion about that unpleasant sound. Like, why doesn't that guy, you know? <laughs> and that's going to start, it's, gonna, it's just about to say something about it. It's just about to issue a judgment. Nah. I'm just going to drop that. I'm just going to keep paying attention to the breath. And that, that sound is just sound. And that unpleasantness is just unpleasantness. And then you're back to, to not... So you never got born there. There's no bawo when you have an experience like that. <clears throat> okay, so <clears throat> it's not just applicable during meditation. Obviously, it's applicable during every social interaction, pretty much every moment of your life, right up to the point where you have to face death. Um, so what meditation does is it shows this to you. It shows you how the mind works. And once you know how it works, and you can you can catch it doing that more and more frequently, and and then um, as you get more and more expert at that, uh, your meditation, your, basically your mind becomes more peaceful because you no longer feel pushed around by by tanha and upadana and becoming. And as that mind gets more peaceful, it's able to see that same process process happening at deeper and deeper, more profound levels. So, yeah, usually the, the first time that you actually catch it is the mind's pretty quiet and something pretty provocative happens. You know, something that's happened to you a lot. Uh, you, know, you see somebody that you don't like. Or um, there's a loud noise that startles you. Or something, and, but your mind is so still that, it, that you, you actually are able to see the whole contact, feeling, reaction thing happening in real time. And at that moment, you realize that the mind and its, its uh, feelings and its responses to things, um, like, they don't belong to you. They're, they're conditioned. They, they come about due to causes and conditioned. The only reason that you have an opinion about something is because there was contact. And so you can see that, that your views and opinions are utterly conditioned. They're not really yours. They're just components of having a human psyche. And so that's another, like a deeper seeing into anatta. So the, so the more that you see anatta, the easier it is to let go of your views and opinions and your belief in the self as some sort of real, uh, eternal, existing thing. Uh, and your relationship to the self becomes more and more sort of flexible. Right? It's not like the self disappears or the phenomena of self disappears, but the, um, the phenomena of self changes and your relationship to it, or the, you could say the, 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 its impact on your experience of life changes. Uh, for most people, most of the time, it seems like there's this me here at the center of experience, and the entire rest of the universe is sort of like rotating, moving around out there somewhere, and that, and, and that I'm the very center of the world. And it feels like that. It's like everything else isn't happening somewhere else, and I'm in the middle of it all. It's, well, that's suffering, obviously. Right? That's dukkha. Um, so, but most people, most of the time, are going through that. They're, they're looking at the universe from that perspective of this kind of self in the middle of everything. Um, so what practice reveals is that's just 
an opinion. It's like a view because of our physiological equipment. It, makes, it sort of looks like that, but it's not really the case. Uh, and when, when you can escape that feeling, then yeah, there's a lot less suffering. The feeling could either be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So it is pleasant or unpleasant, then the mind can react with clinging, but it is neutral. Well, um, normally when there's, when there's neutral sensations happening, um, the, the mind isn't pushed into hating it and wanting it to change or loving it and wanting to keep it, but it is kind of pushed towards like not doing anything, not, not recognizing what's happening. And so it's, it's like supported in its, its ongoing ignorance, you could say, because neutral feeling isn't very provocative. And so the, the ignorant mind being touched by neutral feeling has no motivation, no, no inclination, no opportunity to see uh, this change of dependent origination. Right? Yes? When neutral sensation is like bored? Well, that's usually how we react to it, but, but um, neutral sensation, if it persists long enough and the mind gets bored with it, that, that's a painful sensation. So that's when, when a, a kind of a contact, like say you're, say you're having a contact where you're sitting in a chair, your body's pretty comfortable, and there's nobody there. You're in a room waiting for a doctor's appointment, or you're, you woke up in the morning and you're sitting in your kitchen, and there's nothing that you have to do. There's no, no requirements for your time. Um, so there's no pain, there's no pleasure. Not, not particularly, right? Um, well, it's possible for the mind to be very content, very peaceful, very happy, just experiencing that. But it's also possible for the mind to sort of start to get a little restless and want something different than this board, nothing happening. So it starts craving pleasure. But that's, becoming, that's coming from uh, uh, mental formation. So the, 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 uh, the mind produces, uh, it's continually subject to producing, being touched, you could say, by mental objects. So we all have uh, memories of the past, fantasies of the future, uh, imagination, and if we're sitting in a situation that's very quiet and very peaceful, uh, even like opening your eyes and looking at the, at the surface of the table can be enough to make you think about that the table's like made out of wood. And um, I took a woodworking course once, and that was kind of fun. I liked the woodworking course. Maybe I should go do some woodworking, because woodworking is kind of cool to do. And yeah, I need a napkin holder to go on the table here. So uh, I'm going to go, you know, so the mind can, get, get, can like go from being completely nothing to becoming a woodworker that has to go to the shop and do something. Um, just because of that very, almost completely neutral contact of seeing the surface of the table, right? But someone who, was, who, who doesn't have that particular background wouldn't be provoked in that direction, right? But that's, a, that's what happens with an, un, like an untrained mind that's not aware of itself, right? It, it, it'll use the slightest little contact um, as a basis for generating mental formations, which then create bawo and the whole, the whole world comes into existence. So once there's, the, once there's an impulse to go do something, if that's restrained because of circumstances, then that person complains of boredom. 
That's what boredom feels like, wanting to do something or wanting something uh, other than the way things are. And it's a kind of a restless feeling. It's dukkha. It's unpleasant. But it's not because of the neutral sensation. Right? The neutral sensations that are touching the body, the, uh, uh, touching the sense organs, um, they're, they're neutral. They're not really provocative of pleasure or pain. But what they are provocative of, you could say, is um, mental formations of the undisciplined mind. So the, 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 the undisciplined or the unfocused mind is constantly generating uh, like a continuous train of uh, uh, yeah, memories and plans and anticipations and recordings of old movies and conversations you had yesterday and all kinds of stuff. They're kind of in the back of your mind uh, because of all the contacts that you had. And that's just the way our minds work. Um, so even when you're trying to meditate, and you put your, your you know, you try to put your, your your mind on one thing, you can't necessarily prevent it from getting dragged away by something else if your concentration is not good. Um, so unless your concentration is in a good place, uh, the, like the undisciplined mind or the un, untrained or undirected mind is just vulnerable to being dragged away by one of these random things that comes up out of the subconscious. Uh, and you, you see this with like teenagers. I, well, I'm saying that because I lived with teenagers in uh, a house that I lived in back when I was at Lehman. Um, their minds aren't trained, and they're very uh, they're very full of physical energy, and so it's very difficult for them to sort of just like sit still and enjoy the peace of stillness. And they can do that for like. 30 seconds or something, and then, you know, they start getting restless. They want to go do something. Play a video game or talk to their friends or do something. Um, So so neutral feeling by itself ordinarily is not the thing which causes causes a practitioner to notice the chain of dependent origination. But... There's always something. I mean, you, you can't go five minutes without having a pleasant or an unpleasant sensation. Just sitting here, I can scan my body, and I can find half a dozen unpleasant sensations if I, if I look. Um, so that's just the nature of having a human body. There's always something available. Uh, so when you're practicing, you, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's touching you that you could, you could see that the mind's reacting to uh, or, or has the potential to react to if you let it. That's probably more. Cl- that's closer to the truth. Um, the well-supervised mind, well-trained, well-supervised mind, can endure really powerful contacts, both pleasant and unpleasant, without being moved by them. But the undisciplined mind is, is can be moved by very small contacts, and uh, can find itself doing, going down a trail of you know, trying to get more good stuff or trying to get away from bad stuff, and being pushed all over the place by it. So I'm just thought is sort of um, something like noting. Mm-hmm. Is that a pretty decent practice to sort of effectively use? In, like I mean, if you're doing something like that, I don't know, you know, you're folding your laundry, say, and like you're noting while you're doing the whole thing, or even making a cup of tea or pouring your cup of tea there. Mm-hmm. If you're noting, is that the kind of thing where I mean, you can? It's all fairly neutral. Is that beneficial to sort of do on a regular basis as part of the practice? Uh, I would. Yeah, I would. 
I would advocate it. It's, it is a beneficial thing to do. And it's beneficial because, um, like I just said, the, the unsupervised mind is subject to a lot of defilement. You know, like, like things will come along and preoccupy it. Uh, so you, you could be pouring the tea and just paying attention to pouring the tea. Or you could be thinking about all kinds of stuff. Right? And thinking about all kinds of stuff is reinforcing the habit of the mind being lost in thought. And being lost in thought is almost the opposite of what you want in terms of uh, mental training and practice. The, the idea of, of a practitioner is uh, a successful practitioner um, is able to direct his or her attention at the objects that he or she wants to direct attention to. So rather than having attention just get pulled by whatever comes along, a practitioner um, makes a point of being in charge of what attention is doing. Um, if there's something really, really strong which is pulling attention, then to consciously let go of that and go over here and point it at this, um, that's much more uh, in line with training than the, than the just sort of let go of the reins and let the tension get pulled around. So we start off by not having that much control over where attention goes. And then as practice proceeds, we get better and better at not uh, letting our attention get too far out of control. Uh, so noting is really powerful to help uh, help develop that ability. Um, so you know, I mean, like you go on a, a Mahasi Sayadaw retreat and you just note from the second you wake up until the second you fall asleep, you're noting something. And it really does powerfully concentrate the mind and keep it you know, very well supervised. Hard to do when you're doing other things. Like you, It's hard to talk to somebody or have a phone call or work on the computer or uh, any number of other more complicated social things like that and keep noting. But what it does is it does train your mind to... It's, it's, it, has, it has like a cumulative effect of keeping the mind within the present moment of what's actually happening now, whether you're noting or not. And uh, that, that too is beneficial because it's, uh, um, there's less suffering sort of in the present moment. And that, that's a good, uh, that's ultimately what, what meditation is about, is to see what's happening right in this present moment. So the more practice you give yourself, uh, you know, in all different kinds of circumstances to be doing that, the more, the more powerful your meditation gets to be over time. And so the med, you know, meditation informs your, your daily, um, call it, practice of presence. Um, and, you know, if, if you can maintain a noting practice during chores or going for a hike or whatever, uh, yeah, that can be really helpful. And it doesn't have to be like, you know, Lifting, moving, 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 lowering, 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 placing, 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 placing. It doesn't have to be that when you're taking a step, right? It can just be like kind of walking, walking, you know, seeing. Once every two or three seconds can be uh, enough to keep the mind like right here, uh, rather than floating around. Listen to that Lingua Passano talk a few days ago. Mm -hmm. He was talking about a level of tranquility that I think it was like necessary for the mind to be in a state. Yes. So, can you comment on like, do you, do you think you need like some sort of level of tranquility as a prerequisite? Or? Well, um, there are these seven factors of enlightenment. <clears throat> uh, 
and they all um, or you can look at some of the other lists you know, like there's, there's the uh, the Eightfold Noble Path uh, so what I'm what I'm aware of is that these things all reinforce each other and uh, they all develop like in concert with each other so if um, um, for example, if you're seeing, if your mind is, if you're if you're developing concentration and you're starting to see how uh, contact uh, causes the arising of feeling, and feeling causes the arising of uh, craving, like you're kind of getting down into the details of of paticca samuppada, um, you're going to be able to see them all at once. But only in kind of like initially kind of a vague way. You'll see like little glimmers of them. But as the mind gets sharper and sharper, you'll see them deeper and deeper. And the more you see them, uh, as long as you're not interrupted in your practice, the more the more deeply you can see them as time goes by. So the act of seeing the truth calms the mind and makes it more able to see. So there's this kind of like back and forth between practice and insight. Uh, that can happen at multiple different levels. It's part of the reason that when you come to a monastery and you're practicing the eight precepts, um, practicing sila, kind of conscientiously practicing it, you know, watch, like watching what you say, holding your tongue, um, practicing generosity, you know, looking for things that would be helpful to do and doing them. These things are restraining the normal, uh, like unskillful tendencies of the mind. And they, they act like a, they have the effect of a concentration practice. And so they, they make it easier for you to see what your mind is doing, <coughs> and, which is ultimately what it is that you want to be able to do, is see what the mind does to cause itself to suffer, and then drop that. So, uh, <clears throat> of course, the more you see what your mind is doing, the better your sila will be. Right? Like you're not going to do things that are, that are harmful to you or others because you see your mind before it gets around to doing it. You see its inclination, you go, no, 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 we're not going to go there because I know what it, it's saying that would do. You know, some, some unskillful thought train comes up which makes you want to say something nasty to somebody um, or even just something emotionally laden. Like um, you, can, you can hurt somebody's feelings with just a single word, even with just a look. You know, uh, even with just a, a body gesture like that, like that much can hurt someone's feelings. So, um, when you get really sensitive to, to how sila, like how important sila is for concentration, and your concentration gets really good, then you like you would never do anything to hurt somebody's feelings, not even that much, right? Because you're you're supervising yourself, and you know, like when something unskillfuls kind of coming up because you're having some unpleasant reaction to somebody else's behavior. Um, you know, there, there's, you'll have the awareness to not do that unskillful thing, which makes it easier to concentrate, right? because that unskillful thing is no, not going to reverberate in your consciousness later on. So, like, every aspect of the practice is reinforcing and helping every other aspect. And pretty much the, the way it works is the more you do it, you, the better you get every aspect of it. So there isn't really like a, a do this first, do that second quality to it at all. It's like you, you kind of work at all of them, 
But if you're not sure where to start, just start with sila, and everything else will, be, will take care of itself. That's always the entryway. Uh, and there's, a, there's one teacher that I, whose name escapes me at the moment who said something like, uh, you know, concentration does have limitations. Like, like you can get the mind to a certain concentrated state, and then you'll sort of, you'll sort of max out of your, your karmic concentration ability, whatever it is. Um, and then you know your concentration will fade, and next time you sit, maybe you'll get up to that maximum point again. But and if you keep going there, you might get slowly better over time. But there's kind of like an upper limit, like you can't go beyond uh, the ninth jhana. Um, so yeah, it's pretty awesome concentration, but there is like this upper limit. So this teacher was asserting that, but when it comes to sila, there really isn't an upper. You can become a better and better human being your whole life right up to the moment that you die. So, uh, like, seal is the starting practice and it's the ending practice. Don't let go of seal. And of course, in our, unfortunately right now in our culture, uh, for good or for ill, Buddhism is seen as the source of, of mindfulness training practices. And you know, sila is sort of neglected as a as a training, which is unfortunate. But anybody who gets anywhere with mindfulness will see see that sila is important. Usually, you know, like it'll occur to them. Hmm. If you really watch yourself do something awful, it, it, it's nasty. <laughs> it really hurts, right? and so you don't want to do it anymore. Well, I had a thought to change our schedule a little bit. Um, so, starting tonight and through the end until one pra, um, we'll do just morning pujas. We'll have evening pujas be open. So, uh, you're welcome to come to the hall and sit, practice using this space, but we won't do a, a formal chant setup. And if you want to practice in your room, Practice on your own. Do walking, walking meditation, whatever you want to do. Um, just follow your own practice. And then um, um, one pra, we'll, get, we'll come together for a Dhamma talk and the usual program in the evening. And then we'll uh, probably make another change then, too. I'm gonna, since the weather's getting cold and it's, we have kind of a, an experienced group of people here, there's not like newbies that we have to... Um, look out for new people. Um, we can do. We can play with the play with the schedule a little bit. Do something to open it up. A little bit. So we'll start with that. So I'm gonna call it call it quits for tea. And uh, thank you very much. And I'll see you in the morning.